Hello, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 3rd of January 2013, and I'm very pleased to be speaking to Mr. Bobby Gilpin, who has a ministry to reach Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and also to equip the church here in the UK with an understanding of these faiths and practical advice as to how Christians can engage effectively with members of those religions in conversation. And in addition to giving talks and seminars across the UK and mission trips to the US, he runs a couple of blogs, Mormonism Investigated UK and Watchtower Investigated UK, both for the UK Partnership for Christ Ministry based in the northeast of England. So, Bobby. Hello. Hello. Can I first of all wish you a very happy new year? Oh, yes. Thank you. Happy new year. It's all over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And thanks very much for joining me here on The Mind Renewed. No problem. Now, what I'm hoping to do in this interview is to get into some detail as to what Mormons believe and who they are, and uh, also to ask your advice as to how Christians can best interact with them in conversation. Mm. Um, But I think, first of all, it would be a good idea if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, great. I'm, um, I'm 30 years old. I live in the Middlesbrough area up in the northeast. I'm, uh, I've been married for nine years to Vicky. We've got a little boy called Liam. Uh, for my job, I'm just a community worker in the local authority. I'm a part of Middlesbrough Community Church. I've been a part of that for quite a few years. And um, basically, most of my life is just spent bouncing between work, uh, family, this this ministry stuff that we do, and church life, and and things like that, with a, a little bit of Xbox here and there. So there's never a dull moment. <laughs> so, have you always been a Christian? Then, do you have a Christian upbringing? No, I wasn't brought up with it whatsoever. I remember when I was about 17, I was at college and there was this girl in school that I heard she was quite from quite a religious family. And I remember one day she invited me along to the, the Alpha course that many mm. people might have heard of. And being someone with no particular interest in this stuff, my first instinct was no, but it was, um, you know, the girl was quite nice. So I thought, well, maybe you never know. Uh-huh. Um, it was at a big posh hotel with free food on. So, so I went along. And I, I totally didn't expect to be taking anything from it in the kind of spiritual sense. I just thought it'd be a bit of fun for a few weeks and then forget about it. What really impacted me was every week on the Alpha course, you tend to get people getting up telling their story of when they came to faith in Christ, how it changed them, the impact he's had on their life. That showed me for the first time that Christianity wasn't just about kind of you behaving well and then maybe going to heaven, because I had no interest in that as a 17-year-old, whether that was true or not. Mm. And then... As the weeks went on, they got to a week where they talked about sin. And what they talked about was that basically when you're kind of in this position of not being in Christ, that there's going to be a lot of things in your life that you're actually powerless without him to kind of get rid of. And I looked at things in my life, not major things looking at it now, but things that I wasn't happy with that I just knew I I was powerless to kind of get rid of. So one night, I can still remember the date, it was October the 30th, 99. I was in my room. I was reading this little book called Why Jesus Manual that Nicky Gumbel wrote. And it was just talking about basically how simple it is just to come to Christ, how to kind of commit yourself to him, as it were. And so on that night, I did, you know, the Jesus prayer, as many have said, and I I gave my life to him. And and for me, it was kind of just my awareness of going from someone who didn't know God to someone who was fully aware that God was there. And it was it was strange. As a new Christian, I wasn't suddenly thinking I need to stop doing this. I need to stop doing that. But I just lost the desire to do certain things that I was doing before. And the life's kind of gone on from there. And then you develop this interest in sharing your faith with with Mormons particularly, but also Jehovah's Witnesses. How how did you get interested in that? Because often it's people who used to be involved in those faiths who then later feel called to minister in that area. But that's not the case with you, is it? 
No, I had no background whatsoever with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, no knowledge of them at all. Basically, how that all started was when I became a Christian, I was... Like I say, I kind of went through this change and I became very, very keen, very enthusiastic. I was at college and I was inviting everyone that I could find to church, to Alpha courses, that kind of thing. Um, not Mom's Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, just anyone. But there was a religious studies class that kind of got wind of what I was doing. And they used to have discussions on me and refer to me as the scary cult boy. <laughs> you know, a scary cult boy invited you to church this week, type, that type of thing. Right. And in my second year, I thought, I, I want to join a religious studies class just to be a part of these types of discussions. And I ended up joining that exact same one. And so it was a chance for me to explain where I was coming from and kind of have a bit of fun. You know, scary cult boys joined us, that kind of thing. <laughs> but in that class, there was a Mormon guy named Jamie. At that time, I had no idea what that meant. I remember we did have a couple of little discussions at dinner time. I wasn't trying to witness to him. I was just trying to understand it. And I picked up that his... His religion was quite legalistic. It was kind of an expectation that they must go to church. I remember we did this survey once, you know, how much of a requirement is going to church in your religion. I actually put quite low down, kind of, I don't have to go, but I want to go type of thing. Mm. And he put it very high up, you know, I'm expected to go. But anyway, so that caught a little bit of interest. But towards the end of this year in the religious studies class, I did a piece of coursework called Describe and Evaluate to Christian Cults. At that stage, I still had no idea what that meant. But a little bit of internet research quickly shown me that the two groups that very largely fall into that category are the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so for the first time, I really started looking into what the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believed. I put my details on the Jehovah's Witness website and they knocked on my door. And I'm like a six, nine month old Christian or whatever. And I'm trying to witness to them and, and they just threw me all over the place. Very brave. Very brave indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and so I definitely wouldn't recommend new Christians to try that one. But um so I really went through almost a little bit of a faith crisis early in my Christian life of thinking, are the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses right, or one of them? I kind of thought, well, I, I want to get this Christianity stuff right, right from the beginning. And so I looked at the Bible in a bit more depth. I looked past just the Jesus loves you, you know, you need to put your faith in him, that type of thing. I looked more at the nature of God. I looked more about what salvation was, how you truly could come to kind of be righteous before God. I really looked at all that stuff. And I realized that they were not teaching the same thing as what the Bible taught. They were taught in another gospel, as Galatians 1, 8 warns against. And so I came to the realization then that not only should I not become a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, but that actually if Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are teaching a gospel contrary to what Jesus in the Bible taught, then they are actually lost. And so for me, that was quite a big realization. And as I spoke to other Christians in my church about it and other Christians in college, I realized that to them it wasn't such a natural thing that they would want to witness to moms and Jehovah's Witnesses. And so quite early on in my Christian life, I realized that this was something specific to me that God was calling me to. And so at the end of college, I decided to go on a church gap year and go to Manchester and work with a church plant for a year and do a year of outreach evangelism. And I remember I said to my church leader, is it possible that I'm called to reach these people in particular? And he said, yes, it's very possible. When you go to Manchester, you know, ask God, to confirm it for you you know give you opportunities that type of thing and so i did that and on the very first day of outreach that we did in manchester there was two mormon missionaries watching like a public display that we were doing so i went straight over to them started having discussion with them there was a crowd of people there who kind of christians who got around while we were all talking and one guy said to me you know just get the details or we'll meet up with them and that guy was a guy in the church who was a lot more knowledgeable experienced in speaking to them and kind of throughout the year he almost trained me in a sense to be able to understand them and speak to them and by the end of that year i had so many encounters with mormons and jehovah's witnesses that I I knew this is what God had called me to. 
after that, that led to quite a few years of frustration in a sense. My church leaders were trying to put me through the usual motions in a sense of, you know, be a youth leader, be a small group leader and all that type of thing. And I, and I did it. And I think that helped me grow and develop. But I always knew that there was something else that I was particularly called to that kind of didn't fit within the mold of what people are usually called to. Very late on, I, I actually took a mission trip to Utah. Um, so I've, I've been three times in the last three years. That might well come up again later on. But for the first time I went, it kind of made me realize just... I mean, Utah is, a, is an American state, which is 68% Mormon in its population. And it's just, I've never seen anywhere so dominated by a religion. I went to a session of general conference, which is something watched by Mormons all around the world. But it's in a 21,000 seater conference hall. Then I was sat there with 21,000 Mormons around me listening to their prophets and apostles speak. And it, it just kind of made me realize just kind of how significant this thing is that God's called me to do. So when I came home, I thought, well, I want to do something more with this. So I decided to start going to the local Mormon Institute classes. I went to the Billingham Mormon Church and went to their theology classes, not to cause a stir or to you know, stand up in the middle of it and say you're wrong, but just to listen and learn and to get to know some of the people in a relational sense, if I could. Mm. There was one particular person there called Cheryl, who we got to know. And we started hanging out with her outside of the Mormon classes. And one night we really challenged her with, you know, her need to be born again, her need to know God personally, not just through a, an institution as such. And she left the Mormon church and is now a part of Middlesbrough Community Church and has been a Christian oh, for a couple of years. And so, mm -hmm. so all of these type of things kind of accumulated to us going to Utah again a couple of times. And now we've formed this ministry, UK Partnerships for Christ, which is actually a branch of Utah Partnerships for Christ, which is the ministry that we've worked with over there. Now, of course, you, you, you've been saying a lot about Mormons, but actually there are different groups, aren't there? And I think we're talk, yeah. talking here mostly about Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is that right? The LDS, as they're called. Yes. So could you tell us more about what the LDS Church actually is in the modern world, but also something about its history, how it came to be? Yeah. Um, the Mormon Church, is, as many will know, has its foundation in a, in a man named Joseph Smith. He was born 1805 in um, a little town called Sharon in Vermont, if I remember rightly. And the story goes that when he was around 14, 15 years old, he was in a particular kind of state of inner turmoil. I'll actually read you something here. This is what they consider as part of their scripture, but it's Joseph Smith's kind of saying what he was going through. And he said, my mind at times was greatly excited. The cry and tumult were so great and incessant. The Presbyterians were most decided against the Baptists and Methodists and used all the powers of both reason and sophistry to prove their errors, or at least to make people think they were in error. On the other hand, the Baptists and Methodists were equally zealous in endeavouring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. And then he says, while I was labouring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contests of these parties or religionists, I was looking at James 1.5, which says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. So where their beliefs go from there is that Joseph Smith read this verse and kind of thought, well, I'm going to pray and ask God what church to join, what's true. And so Joseph Smith goes out into the woods, gets on his knees before God and says, you know, what church should I join? What they believe happened at this point was that God the Father and God the Son appeared in front of him. Jesus then said, this person, as you address me, said that all their creeds, this is talking about the Christian churches, were an abomination in his sight, that all those professors were corrupt, that they draw near to me where their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and they teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. 
And so what that meant was Joseph Smith was being told by Jesus, according to their belief, that all the churches were wrong. He shouldn't join any of them. And what happened then was over the following years, Joseph Smith was met once a year by this angel called the Angel Moroni. And he prepared him for the day when he was going to be given these golden plates, which he would then use to translate the Book of Mormon. The day came where he was given these plates and translated what they believe to be the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is what they believe is an account of some ancient Israelites who went over from Israel to America and formed a nation of people, the Nephites and the Lamanites. There was also another group called the Jaredites, and there was a lot of wars among them. They, they believe that when Jesus ascended in Acts, he then descended to these people over in America and taught them as well. And they see that as the foundation of what they believe, that God gave the gospel to these people, that the Christian church has lost the kind of power of the gospel and that it's now being restored to the Mormon church. So the Mormon church kind of has the fullness of Christian truth. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they don't look at the Christian church and say it's all completely wrong. It's completely false. They see the Christian church as kind of lacking in truth, but they've got the fullness of it. Mm-hmm. And so quite often Mormons today will try and appeal to Christians as saying we are Christians as well. You should accept us as Christians. We accept you as Christians. But then when we get into their theology later on, we see that there is a very, very dramatic difference in terms of what they believe. But their historical foundation is that they exist today. There's about 14 million members. They're headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. They've got around, I think, 55,000 missionaries at any given time. So that's the young guys that you'll see with the badges on who knock on your door. Every area tends to have two of them full time. We're working all week doing knocking on door contacts and basically evangelizing for them to bring them into the restored church. Mm-hmm. And their numbers have grown quite dramatically, haven't they, in the last 20 years or so? Yeah, according to a, a chart I've got here in 1990, they had about 8 million. Today, they've got 14 million plus. So quite often they do pride themselves on being one of the like fastest growing churches in America. I think what's been found in recent years is that in America and in the UK, they are growing less fast. But in, in different other countries like Ghana, the third world types of places, they do seem to be growing quite fast at the moment. And as you say, a lot of people do have the impression that they are basically just another Christian denomination. But there are a lot of differences in what they believe, aren't there? Um, so could you give us some idea of the detail about what they do believe? I'd like to divide this into a couple of sub-questions, if I may. First of all, could you tell us something about who they actually believe Jesus to be and who is God the Father and the Holy Ghost? So what's their attitude towards the Trinity? Yeah, I'll start with God the Father, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm- sure one flaws out of that ultimately um i'll go right to the beginning they believe that we all and, and all means you me god the father jesus everyone ultimately back in history existed as intelligences that's before this world was created we all eternally existed as intelligences and what happens then this is called eternal progression or the law of progression is that as these intelligences we then had an opportunity to be given spirit bodies which meant that we then existed in heaven before we came to earth in these spirit bodies we would have our god over us and we would then go to earth to be given physical bodies as you and i have now and as we're given these physical bodies we can then progress by obeying the laws and ordinances of the true church on that world and then we can progress to become a god ourselves Joseph Smith, in a sermon called the King Follett's Sermon, he said, we've imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. These are incomprehensible ideas to some, but they are simple. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another and that he was once a man like us. 
yes, that God the Father of us all dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. So they believe that God the Father was once a man on another world who started out as a spirit child, got a physical body, progressed as such that he gained his exaltation. I'll explain that word a bit more later. And he then became a God over his own kingdom. So they believe that we have heavenly parents, that there is God the Father and God the Mother in heaven right now. And they are producing spirit children that come out of these intel, you know, as intelligences to gain spiritual bodies in heaven. And then you and I have come to the earth in our physical bodies in order that we may go through our probation. And so ultimately, they believe that God the Father is a man who, who was exalted to the position of Godhood and is now reigning over us as our God. And so Jesus, they very literally see as our elder brother. He was the firstborn of our heavenly parents. So they take that verse in Colossians, firstborn over creation, and make that a literal thing in that he was the first to be born of our heavenly parents. And so as the first to be born, he was given quite a significant status. But when he came to the earth and went through all that he went through, went through the sacrifice that he went through, he actually earned his exaltation. And so he came out of the earth more glorious than he came into it. One of their prophets, the 10th Mormon prophet, Joseph Fielding Smith, said that Christ gained fullness after resurrection. The Savior did not have a fullness at first, but after he received his body in the resurrection, all power was given unto him in heaven and on earth. And so they see Jesus as our elder brother who has gone through something and been exalted in the same way that we can potentially be exalted. So I, I once had a Mormon missionary sat in my living room saying to me that he thought that one day he could be as great as Jesus is if he had gone through his kind of probation in such an exemplary way. And so in terms of the Holy Ghost, mm-hmm. they do see the Holy Ghost as a third person in the Godhead. But he is not the eternal God as we believe. The Holy Ghost is one of these spirit people who's been given the position of the Holy Ghost. And he is currently functioning in that position. I don't think they know how he was chosen or why he was chosen. And ultimately, one day, the Holy Ghost will have to gain a physical body, come to the earth and go through his probation and hopefully earn his exaltation later on. And so when we talk about the Trinity, they don't believe in the Trinity like we do, in that there's three persons, but that's one God. What they tend to call it these days is they say there's one Godhead, but ultimately what they mean is that there is three gods. So they do believe in a plurality of gods, that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three separate gods that are just one in purpose, but not one in substance. So as far as we're concerned, then, there is actually only one God. Is that is that right? As it were, to do with our world, we have God the Father, who is our God. Yeah. So who is Jesus? I mean, with respect to us, he's not our God, is he? Not in that direct sense. I mean, one of their past apostles, Bruce McConkie, was quite clear in that we shouldn't pray to Jesus. We should, you know, our God is God the Father. So in that sense, you are absolutely right. And I think ultimately Mormons would probably say he is our elder brother. He is someone we look to. He is someone that we respect. But he will one day be the, the father in some other world, some other Essentially, yeah. universe or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely the chance of that. I think that would be an issue that you would find different opinions of amongst Mormons, as you do with quite a lot of these issues. But yeah, the kind of law of eternal progression suggests that one day Jesus should have his own kingdom and rule over that with his wife. And so there's certainly quite a friendliness towards the perspective that Jesus was married within the Mormon church. And it's interesting you say that Bruce McConkie actually suggested that they shouldn't really relate to Jesus in a personal way. Do you think that a lot of Mormons actually take that advice and, and just do not 
have a relationship with Jesus? I think that would depend on on the individual, because what we found quite a lot with Mormonism is that what some of the past leaders have said quite clearly and quite bluntly, they don't say today in the same way. And so there may be people that particularly prescribe to what Bruce McConkie said and think we shouldn't. I've seen this in discussions. We shouldn't pray to Jesus. We shouldn't worship Jesus. Whereas the way the Mormon church portrays itself today is very much a movement that does worship Jesus, that type of thing. So it, it almost depends on which era of Mormonism someone comes from, depending on which leader that they've particularly read and ascribed to, and then depending on how literally they take that. Okay, so you've explained something of this, uh, What I think they call it, do they also call this the plan of salvation, this movement towards exaltation? Yeah. But as part of that, do they believe that they can attain to this exaltation simply by having faith in what Jesus has done? Or do they feel that they're going to going to earn this by their works? There's, um, for the Mormons, there's a manual they have called True to the Faith, which is an official Mormon manual that actually lays out five different definitions for the meaning of the word salvation. I'll go through them one by one. The first one is salvation from physical death. And what that means is that we all rise again in the next life. We all get raised and then judgment follows. And so they actually call that a method of salvation. We don't. We just call it resurrection because some people at that point will be damned. So they're certainly not going to see that as a salvation. But they call that salvation from physical death. So sometimes you can say to a Mormon missionary, you know, you guys don't believe in salvation by grace, do you? And they'll very quickly and honestly come back to you and say, yes, we do. But they're appealing Mm. to this meaning of the word salvation. They also then believe in salvation from sin. Um, I'll, I'll just read a quote from that manual. It says, to be cleansed from sin through the Savior's atonement, you must exercise faith in Jesus Christ, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you have been baptized and have received the Holy Ghost, bearing in mind the baptism must come through their baptism, you have then been conditionally saved from sin. And so that salvation from sin is a conditional save from sin, but it's dependent on you then enduring to the end and living out this Mormon gospel. The third meaning is being born again. So it says, if you've been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the covenant to take upon yourself the name of Jesus Christ, you can say that you have been born again and you can renew that rebirth each Sabbath when you partake of the sacrament. That's quite an important point because what they believe is that every Sunday when they go to church, they they take the sacrament, which is the bread and the water. And they see that as a literal renewing of their covenant with God every week. So they believe that their cleanest point of the week is when they're taking that sacrament. If they died right then, they will be absolutely fine. But as soon as they leave the church building and sin again and make a mistake, they've kind of gone to that point of not being entirely clean before God. And so that's another element of that righteousness that we believe we have in Christ all the time. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. For them, they can't say in the same way. The fourth meaning is salvation from ignorance, which just literally means being saved from ignorance of the truthfulness of the gospel. And then the final meaning is eternal life or exaltation. And here's what it says about this. It says, to receive this great gift, we must do more than repent of our sins and be baptized and confirmed by the appropriate priesthood authority. Men must receive the Melchizedek priesthood and all church members must make and keep sacred covenants in the temple, including eternal marriage. So eternal life or exaltation is by no means something you receive just by faith alone. It's something you have to have faith, but then a great deal of works there's there's actually a very long list of all of the different things that they have to do in order to receive this exaltation 
Yeah, so this is an, an extra, well, there are uh, layers and layers upon extra complication here in their theology, because uh, this is something which is over and above what we might think of as salvation just from a Christian point of view, isn't it, where you're put right with God, but this is some extra movement towards a great apotheosis where you can become a God yourself, and you do that not through faith alone, that's through these extra observances that are prescribed. Yeah, they believe in three different levels of heaven. There's the celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial. There's three different levels within the celestial as well. And ultimately, what they believe is that everyone, regardless of their faith in Christ or not, will go to the celestial kingdom, apart from those that have murdered, or apart from those that have really apostatized from the church, which they will consider to be sinning against the Holy Ghost. Everyone will go to the celestial kingdom. Then there's the terrestrial kingdom, which is where Jesus is. That's where people who've lived quite righteously or had some faith in Christ will go. So they'll quite often say to us, you know, well, you're going to go to the terrestrial kingdom. You're going to go where Jesus is anyway, so you're okay. But then there's the celestial kingdom, which is where you go. The top level of that is exaltation, is earning your godhood. And that comes through obeying everything that the church commands of you to do going through all of their ordinances, going through all of their callings, that kind of thing, and then hopefully you may receive this exaltation as a fruit of all of those different works. As you say, hopefully, so they can't have a a sense of security that this is going to happen. They've got to hope that their father thinks that what they've done is good enough, presumably. No, that's exactly right, yeah. Uh, Could you tell us something about what the function of the temple is? You mentioned it a couple of times. What, What role does it play in all this? Yeah, Uh, The temple is very, very, very significant to Mormons. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many they have worldwide, but there's two in the UK. There's one in London, there's one in Chorley. And in the temple, on on a basic level, if that's the right way of putting it, they do baptisms for the dead. So they believe that some who've, or many who've gone through this life and not done all the things that they need to do, not had a faith in Christ, they'll go to a place called Spirit Prison. And in this spirit prison, they're waiting for the opportunity to still progress even in the next life. So these baptisms for the dead are carried out in order that these people in spirit prison can be kind of freed from that prison and then can carry on their progression. They also do wedding sealings for eternity. So they believe that in the celestial glory, we could be married for all eternity as, as, as our heavenly parents are. So when people get married, they tend to get it sealed there. In the US, the law allows them to get married in the temple and have the sealing done at the same time. So quite often what you'll find then is if people have non-Mormon family or Mormon family that aren't worthy to go into the temple, they have to sit outside and wait while the wedding ceremony is going on. In England, the law doesn't allow them to get married in the temple, so they get married at a local Mormon chapel, and then they go quite often straight over to the temple and have it sealed then. You say there's people who are considered to be worthy who are allowed actually to go into the temple. Yeah. Because I went over to the Chorley Temple, it was probably about 10 years ago, just to see around, and I was I was greeted by actually by somebody who was dressed completely in white, which I thought was rather strange. And uh, you know, I said, is it possible to see inside the temple? And he, said, he did actually say to me that, well, no, only people who are considered to be worthy are permitted. There was a special open day or something, and then the, the place was then shut to any visitors. Yeah, what tends to happen when they very first open a temple anywhere is they have an open house for a couple of weeks where you can go in, you can have a tour around and get shown. You can't, you don't see everything, but you can see a lot of the different places within it and have it explained to you afterwards what they meant. But as soon as it's dedicated, as soon as that then is closed up and become an active temple, you can only go into that if you're a worthy Mormon. And what that means is you've been a Mormon for at least a year. 
And throughout that period of time, you've done all of the things expected of you. You've tithed, you've fulfilled your callings, you've got, you've gone to the church on a regular basis. You've basically fulfilled all the expectations. And once those expectations are then met, you were given a temple recommend, which is like a piece of card um, with your ID on and they can scan it. And then you can go into any temple around the world. And that's your evidence that you're allowed to go in. The white clothing is, um, is what they wear when they're going through any of these ordinances within the temple. They wear white and to the mormons the outward white symbolizes purity mm-hmm. and after they've started going into the temple on a regular basis they have these things called the temple garments which they wear all the time that's kind of their underwear that they wear from that point on now am i right in thinking that here there is a link with freemasonry yeah that because was it is it not right that joseph smith at one point actually was a freemason yeah up until his death i'm not sure of the exact date but um basically what happened was joseph smith became a freemason and then literally three weeks later, he brought the endowment ceremony or the, all these temple things into place. What also goes on in the temple is a kind of an ordinance called the endowment. And this endowment is something they go through where they learn various signs and tokens. They literally learn handshakes. They've kind of got a veil up in the temple and they put the hand through this veil and they're trained within this ordinance to be able to do handshakes in a certain way. And from my understanding, the belief is that when they die or when they stand before God, in order to prove to God that they've gone through all of the ordinances that they need to go through in this life, they will literally shake his hand in this particular way to prove that they've gone through it and to prove that they're worthy of celestial glory. And it's been very easily proved, I think, what Joseph Smith learned in Freemasonry. He carried straight over into the Mormon Temple ordinances. There's this thing that they used to have before 1990 called the Five Points of Fellowship. Um, that was actually done away with in the Mormon Temple ceremony then. But the Five Points of Fellowship is something that is literally used in the Freemasonry as well. With that, quite often, Mormons just don't know that. So if you try and tell them it, they just won't believe you. They'll say you're making it up. What the Mormon apologists tend to say, if, who do know that you know a lot of this was taken from Freemasonry and they can't really deny it, is that they say they both took it from the same sacred place. Ah, right. So uh, that's their way around it. But either way, yeah. a very large percentage of what goes on within the temple is is taken straight from Freemasonry. Yeah, I'd like to move on to why it is they believe what they do believe. Um here we're looking at the scriptures that they have. They obviously recognize the authority of the Bible, but they do say we recognize it so insofar as it's translated correctly, which perhaps you'll have something to say about in a minute. Uh, they also have the Book of Mormon, which you've also mentioned, but they also have two other books of scripture, which I think a lot of people are not aware of, which from my experience, they really are very reluctant to talk about unless you push them to do so. And that's the Doctrine of Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. So could you go through what these four sources of authority are and, and why, why it is they push the Book of Mormon and then tend to hide the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price? Um, one of their articles of faith talking on this subject says, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. So you see there the qualifier is not given to the Book of Mormon. And so they are kind of told to see the Bible almost with a pinch of salt in the sense of quite a lot of the plain and precious truths have been taken from it over the years, whereas they see the Book of Mormon as being very correct, is very right. The reason that when you get Mormon missionaries at your house, they won't even have a Doctrine of Covenants and Pearl of Great Price on them, is that they're told to use the Book of Mormon as the means by which to convert people to the church. 
in Moroni 10, 3 to 5, there's something called Moroni's promise, whereas if you read through the Book of Mormon and you ponder and pray on these things, you will find out to it to be true. And the problem with the Book of Mormon is that actually the Book of Mormon biblically is not really that wrong. A lot of the really kind of problematic beliefs that Mormons have, such as this belief in eternal progression, this belief in baptisms for the dead, exaltation, all of that, none of that's in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is quite in a lot of ways. It, it talks about Jesus. It talks about faith. It talks about a lot of the issues that we would consider okay. And in fact, quite a bit of the Book of Mormon seems to have been lifted straight out of the Bible, actually. There's a quite a bit long passages from Isaiah and yeah. passages from Paul, which read almost word for word. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's estimated that around a third of the Book of Mormon is directly lifted from the King James Bible. Right. The entire way that the Book of Mormon reads, it reads as though you're reading the King James Bible. Yet the belief is is that it was translated from Reformed Egyptian and that a large proportion of it was wrought before Jesus even existed. Yet right from the beginning, it's talking about Jesus by name. It's talking about issues such as faith and works, which weren't issues discussed in Old Testament times or in the Old Testament. That was kind of New Testament issues. And so mm. what the Book of Mormon does in a lot of ways is it combines the New and Old Testament. And so things like the name of Jesus, things like faith and works, things, things that the Old Testament didn't know about yet, it kind of places in that context. And you said before that uh, the, the way in which the Book of Mormon is different, really, is it's because it has this great description of the Hebrew people over on a different continent. Yeah. And so it's really like a parallel history to the Jewish people in Palestine with all their messianic expectations. And then they have this eventual visit of Jesus Christ. So it is, as they say, uh, another testament of Jesus. But yeah. the problem is, are they actually able to produce any evidence outside of the Book of Mormon itself to confirm any of these astounding claims, really? The Mormon apologists would say, yes, we have evidence. But in terms of are there non-Mormon scholars, are there people who've done independent research and found it to be kind of coherent with the Book of Mormon? And the answer is simply no. One really good example is that in 2004, a guy called Simon Southerton, he was a Mormon bishop in Australia. He was initially a very faithful Mormon. He did a DNA study. And what he did was he looked at whether the Native Americans, because if all of these people really were going over from Israel to ancient America and planting a civilization and going on from there, then as far as Mormon belief goes, that means that they are the ancestors of the Native Americans. So he did a study to then confirm by DNA that in the DNA of Native Americans, we see an Israelite background. And when he did that, he realized that there was absolute trace to none, that very largely the DNA background of Native Americans was from Asia. He wrote this book in 2004. But then what you find is that there's a lot of people who kind of are apologists for the Mormon church and they've come out with all sorts of studies in their own. And they've said, look, it doesn't matter. The DNA is, you know, it's false, that kind of thing. But what the Mormon church did, the official Mormon church, is that in 2006, it changed the introduction. There's a part right at the beginning of the introduction of the Book of Mormon where it says the record gives an account of two great civilizations. One came from Jerusalem in 600 BC and afterwards separated into two nations known as the Nephites and the Lamanites. The other came much earlier when the Lord confounded the tongues at the Tower of Babel, this group known as the Jaredites. And here's where we get to the point. After thousands of years, all were destroyed except the Lamanites, and they were the principal ancestors of the American Indians. So that's what it said before 2006, that these people are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. Simon Southerton writes his book in 2004. In 2006, this introduction was changed to they are among the ancestors of the American Indians. And so they went from a very confident bold claim that this is it, these are the principal ancestors. But after this study came out, they changed it to, well, they're among the ancestors. 
And so you've got all these apologists trying to explain it away, saying that Simon Southerton was wrong. But you've got the official Mormon church actually changing the introduction to the Book of Mormon two years from there. And within Mormonism, you do find that quite a lot. You find that you've got apologists who kind of try and explain away a lot of the key different issues that have come up within Mormonism throughout its history. The way that the Book of Mormon was translated one of their parts of the Pearl of Great Price, the, the Book of Abraham, in the 1960s, a lot of these Egyptian hieroglyphic plates were found that were what would Joseph Smith use to translate the Book of Abraham. And it was kind of the Mormon church's chance to prove, look, Joseph Smith was right all along. You know, they got the best Egyptologist. He translated all of these plates and they turned out to just be pagan funeral texts. And that was a massive blow. And so what you'll find is that the Mormon church on an official level has never even really acknowledged that. Whereas you've got all of these apologists saying, look, it doesn't matter. It's not true. There must be some plates missing. You know, he was reading it on a spiritual level. And many people might have seen that the BBC did a documentary last year on the Mormon church when it was in the lead up to Mitt Romney and him becoming president, which obviously didn't happen. But um, they actually questioned Jeffrey Holland, one of the current 12 apostles on this issue of the Book of Abraham. And he just very kind of glossed over it but basically said oh well he was reading it in the spiritual sense not in the physical sense and that's what quite often they do when when these issues arise they'll spiritualize it and say okay it wasn't physically the case but it was spiritually the case and but then you've got the apologists doing that and the church saying something different and yet there will be presumably a, a translation of the funerary text there which is going to be quite different from what they claim yeah. it is in the book of abraham yeah that's absolutely right and so many people um, are leaving the mormon church now more than ever before as a result of these types of issues when you said they made a change to the introduction to the Book of Mormon, was that actually changing the text of the Book of Mormon itself? Well, that was part of the introduction, which they would say, and I think rightfully so, is not scripture. They wouldn't consider the introduction to be scripture, but they did it quietly. There wasn't like some mm. announcement in the magazine, look, we're changing this. It was just done quietly. So I remember speaking to a guy on the streets in Utah last year about this whole DNA issue. And he was saying, again, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not that big an issue. And I said, well, why did they change the introduction to your Book of Mormon? And he didn't know. So I, kind of, I was challenging him to go right. away and get his own yeah. Book of Mormon, not some anti-Mormon, you know, book that someone's wrote. Just look at your own scripture and you'll see that that's actually been changed in the introduction. But as, as well, it's been estimated that there's been 3,913 changes in the Book of Mormon since it was originally wrought. Well, in fact, I was going to ask you about that next. I have sitting here on my lap 3,913 changes in the Book of Mormon from the 1830 edition. And... Just by flicking through it, obviously I've, I've not managed to read through the whole thing, but just flicking through it, there are a huge number of uh, alterations which seem to have been made. And yet, do they not claim that it's the most correct book of all time or something along yeah. those lines? That's what Joseph Smith said. I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most true book of any on the face of the earth and will get closer to God, abiding by its precepts than any other book. To be fair, and Mormons will say this very justifiably so, the majority of those are grammar changes or punctuation changes but there's a few there that are very very significant um, one of them is i've just got this in front of me now it's 2 nephi 36 which originally said and i'll explain the background to this their scales of darkness shall begin to fall from their eyes and many generations shall not pass away among them save there shall be a white and delightsome people that's what it originally said today that has been changed to a pure and delightsome people and that's kind of a whole can of worms of Mormon history, but ultimately up until 1978, 
Mormon black men were not allowed to have hold the priesthood. And so the priesthood is kind of basically the authority within the Mormon church that men have in order to act on God's behalf, in order to lead, in order to baptize, all of that kind of thing. And up until 1978, black people were not allowed to hold that priesthood at all. And the background to that is that they believe that in this pre-existence that we talked about earlier, there was a big war in heaven. Lucifer said, I want to be the savior. I want to go to earth and I want to give no one the free will whether to follow. They're all just going to follow me and I'm going to get the glory. Jesus said, I want to go to the earth. I want to give them all the free will whether, whether to choose or not. And Father, I want to give you the glory. Obviously, Jesus was the one chosen to be the saviour, but there was a big rebellion. Loads of people ended up being Satan's demons fought against all of us that were kind of on God's side. But there was a group of people who just sat back and kind of watched and kind of waited to see who was going to win. And then they chose the right side. And Mormonism in its history teaches that these are the black people. And the black people come to the earth with black skin as a punishment for the fact that they were lacking in this valiance in the pre-existence. Up until 1978, black people, as a result of all of that, were not allowed to hold the priesthood. The priesthood was then given to them in 1978. And since then, I think this change, it was in 1981, that brought that change in. Yeah, and that very much then calls into question this whole idea that the Book of Mormon was, was translated in a miraculous way, word for word, and in such that it could not possibly be changed without changing the word of God, which is a, a very different kind of attitude that we have towards the Bible, isn't it, which is transmitted through human agency under the power of the spirit yeah um there is there's some doubt as to how the the book of mormon itself was translated anyway isn't there it was, doesn't it say that it, he used the urim and thummim but isn't there another account of him using a, a stone in a hat yeah no that's exactly right joseph smith before the book of mormon came out he was a money digger he was a treasure seeker but that's not something as such to use against him a great many people were at the time and he had this thing called a seer stone he used to put his face in the hat with the seer stone in it and he would use that to try and find treasure now as it happens he was never ever successful he never ever found treasure as a result of that but when he got these plates and translated the book of mormon history says history being all of the people who were there to give an account of what joseph smith did while they were then writing on paper what he was dictating history says that he put his face in this hat with the same seer stone in it that he used to try and find treasure unsuccessfully and that's from which what he dictated the book of mormon but interestingly i've got a official mormon website in front of me it's mormon.org forward slash book dash of dash mormon and if you go a bit further down there's a part that says translated by the power of god and there's a picture there of joseph smith being sat in front of the plate very clear in plain sight and there's someone sat opposite him just writing down what he's saying as he's dictating it historically that is completely and utterly false the plates were never present during the translation process. They were never seen by people when he was dictating it. He put his face in the hat and used the seer stone. And even if the plates did exist, we don't have access to them now anyway. Is that right? No. Their belief is that after they were finished with all of this, that Joseph Smith gave them back to the angel Moroni, who then took them away, and they've never been seen since. So it does raise problems for people who need a bit more than just being told by someone this is true, you know, someone who wants to actually see something. Like with the Bible, admittedly, we don't have the very original text, but we do have thousands that have come together from different parts of the world that show through consistency the kind of reliability of it. Whereas with the Book of Mormon, it is literally Joseph Smith's word that they have to take that this is true. And when you say Joseph Smith's word, they also seem to treat that as if it's on the level of Scripture as well, don't they? Do, what kind of weight do they give the teaching of their leaders generally? 
Yeah, they believe today that we still have prophets as in the Old Testament times. And so since Joseph Smith came into place, there's always been a prophet over the Mormon church since. Today, it's a guy called Thomas S. Monson. And they believe that this person is the one that's got the mouth of God. They can hear directly from God. They get led directly by him. And when they speak and when they say something authoritatively, that is as good as scripture. There's a talk called the 14 Fundamentals of Following the Prophet, which was given by Ezra Taft Benson. He was an apostle at the time, but went on to be a prophet. And he makes various bold statements, such as saying the prophet is the only man who speaks for the Lord in everything. He's more vital to us than the standard works. What that means is that the living prophet today is more vital to us than the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. So if Thomas S. Monson got up at General Conference, which they have every six months, and said, thus says the Lord this, and if that kind of went against anything past, then that would be correct. The 1978 Black People in the Priesthood is a great example because so many apostles and prophets before that said that black people would never, ever get the priesthood. There's just no chance it's going to happen. It's not going to happen this side of eternity, that type of thing. But then Spencer Kimball, who was the prophet at the time, said, no, this is what we're doing. And so whatever the kind of current prophet says trumps any past prophets or scripture. So unlike if you and I were at church on a Sunday and our church leader said something which we thought wasn't quite right, we go to the Bible, look at it and realize that it's not quite right. We could challenge our leader with that scripture and the scripture would trump him, if you know what I mean. Whereas this prophet at General Conference does that, then no, the prophet stands correct. So in the case of the Bible, they'd be able to say, well, if the Bible does contradict what the prophet is saying, then, well, the Bible's not translated correctly in that place anyway. But then when, if the, the Book of Mormon or one of the other scriptures were to contradict it, they would have to, well, what would they do with that? Would they just live with the contradiction? They would say that God speaks to different people at different times. And so they would say that what that said in the Book of Mormon was good for then, but what this says now is good for us now, and so therefore that stands correct. So in principle, then, any of their beliefs could be changed by yeah. whatever the leader says in the future. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So does this explain, then, why I believe it is the case that Brigham Young taught that God the Father was actually Adam in the Garden of Eden? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of evidence in there to suggest that, although they do deny it. I have brought it up a couple of times in conversation with them, and they do deny that this yeah. is the case. Does this then explain how this change in doctrine can take place, that this was taught by Brigham Young, but now there's, as it were, new light on the subject, and that was just for what people thought in, in the past, but now they don't think it anymore? Is it? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, to be fair to Mormons today, if you say to them, don't you believe Adam is God, they're going to very justifiably and correctly say to you, no, I don't. The problem is, is that they're probably don't know that their church ever taught that depending on their age depending on their research mm. background that kind of thing and so they're going to very honestly say to you i've never heard of that but the reality is that it, as you said it's very kind of evident in history that brigham young taught it i mean in, in the mormon owned newspaper deseret news brigham young said how much unbelief exists in the minds of the latter-day saints in regard to one particular doctrine which is revealed to them and which god revealed to me so he said god's revealed that to me namely that adam is our father and god but that does raise a massive problem because that's different to just a practice. That's actually something about yes. the nature of God. And so either Brigham Young was wrong, which means that their prophet mm. was leading them astray, which is, again, something they don't believe is possible, or the nature of God changed, which I think, again, they wouldn't go with. I think the line that they tend to take is 
that Brigham Young was speaking as a man, that what he was saying there wasn't authoritative. But if you look at the way that he said these things, he seems very clear that he did believe it. Or they say that he's been misquoted. But then the problem is that all of these quotes that we are getting is their very own church materials from the time, which Brigham Young oversaw being published and created at the time. And so, again, that does raise a massive problem to any Mormon who believes that these prophets are inspired and speaking on behalf of God. Yeah, and I suppose because it does create such a problem, that does explain why they really don't want to engage with that problem at all. When I have brought it up, as I say, a couple of times in conversation, and there's a, yeah. almost a kind of denial of its of its reality. You know, I've managed to get some photocopies of some of the kinds of things that you've just mentioned there, and I can show it to them. But it doesn't, doesn't just doesn't That's register, right, yeah. you know, at all. Yeah. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are both very strongly warned against apostate material. Mormons call it anti-Mormon material. And that's basically any material which speaks against their church, speaks against their belief that it's, you know, in their eyes, attempts to tear it down. And there comes a point where this kind of material, even though it is produced by their very own church, is actually classed as this anti-Mormon apostate material, and therefore they don't want to see it, they don't want to hear about it. Quite often I've heard Mormons say to me, the only time that I get challenged about God wants being a man or the only time I hear that stuff is from the anti-Mormons because they just don't tend to go that deep themselves within their movement. So they're immediately suspicious then that this is bogus and this is just an attack on them. Yeah, that's how they would see it straight away. And again, when they speak to their friends in the church, they'll either be told, don't ask if it's someone who knows, or they'll be told, no, that's not true if it's by someone who doesn't know about it. But the Adam-God doctrine is, again, a massive issue, and it just shows that what Brigham Young was teaching. Brigham Young also taught blood atonement, and what that meant was that there were certain sins that Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice didn't cover. And so he said that if you were to catch your wife in bed with another man, it's perfectly reasonable to drive a spear through the both of them. Mm. And as much as that's a horrible situation to be in, it's kind of it's not a biblical response to it. But um, again, that's somewhat of the things he said. And uh, I guess when you're in conversation with them, it's probably not a good idea to just come out with all these kinds of things immediately. Do you, do you have any uh, advice for people as to how they should dialogue with Mormons, how to start off conversation? I mean, I know a lot of people don't even open the door to them, which I, I do think is a shame, actually, because there's right. a great opportunity here just to, to talk about the things of God, talk about your faith. So what advice would you have for people for starting a conversation? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the first thing I would say, and you've kind of just dealt with that issue, is do speak to them. The reality is these are not horrible people. These are not people who are seeking to deceive you. These are people that genuinely believe what they are saying, genuinely believe their church is true. And so I would say, firstly, that just don't be scared of them. Don't see them as people who are going to try and brainwash you or anything like that. Mm. And as well, I'd just say there's no reason to when when you speak to them, go in there with some kind of an agenda to go in there with, you know, a book that you've read or a quote that you've heard from me and then throw that straight at them. Just genuinely get them in your house and just get to know them. I mean, when I meet up with Mormon missionaries, which I have many times over the years, I don't even tend to challenge them in the first meeting at all. I just get to know them, get to know the background. They tend to be young American guys, not always, but so I get to know where their family background. I mean, these people are quite often given up two years of their life. They're only allowed to phone home twice a year. Really? They're only allowed to, Same. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're only allowed to write home once a week. They get half a day off a week. Every day is spent getting up at half six for study. They have to be back in the house by half nine, only to do the same thing again the next day. So these are people that are genuinely going through, you know, quite a demanding process. Yeah. And so, like I say, just get them in, get to know them. I mean, don't assume that they believe everything that you've heard Mormonism says. So if you've heard of this Adam God, if you've heard of this blood atonement, you know, polygamy, all these things that quite often we throw around as the Mormon problems, don't assume that they believe that. Just ask them what they believe in religion to salvation by faith that type of thing and they will come back a number of times won't they do they visit is it up to six times something like that 
they have six lessons that they will go through with you but the reality is there could come much more than that there's some people who i think they've been seeing for years some people who they only see two or three times because mormon missionaries do tend to be very flexible they'll default to the lessons that they want to teach you but if you end up just asking them a lot of questions or if you end up just having a good chat with them i know one guy who had them knock on his door one day when it was pouring down and he said look i don't want to discuss doctrine with you but come in and have a milkshake you know i mean that's perfectly fine i think just anything that gets these guys around christians whether it's a deep doctrinal chat or whether it's just a, how you're doing he's a drink you know here's what jesus did for me is going to communicate to them i heard of one guy who just to quickly go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, who was a Jehovah's Witness for many years, and he had loads of Christians through all sorts of things at him. But what happened to him was a guy put his hand on his shoulder and said, look, Jesus loves you. And for whatever reason, that was the kind of piece of the puzzle that led to him leaving and just putting his faith completely in Christ. So with these guys, there's no reason to feel that you have to engage with every theological point. So you don't need to shy away from it then because you haven't studied it in great detail. That's right. Absolutely right. There's no reason whatsoever for you to necessarily know a lot about Mormonism. Just get them in and ask them about it, but then just share with them what Christ done for you. Share with them the kind of righteousness that you, because Romans 4, 5 says to the one that does not work, but believes in him that justifies the ungodly, that faith is credited to him as righteousness. That's a massive witness to a Mormon. If you can just say to them, look, I stand righteous before the sight of God right now, just because of what yeah. Christ did for me, compared to them, who's got this long list of expectations this long two-year mission to go through which is a cultural expectation that is going to speak to them as they're going through all this type of thing quite often you won't see a missionary fall on the knees and kind of say to you what must i do to be saved because they're very highly monitored they're very very accountable through that two years and they go through and they go to visit people in pairs as well don't they so they keep an eye on each other (laughs) that's right but they're always in pairs they're only ever allowed to separate when they go to the bathroom So, yes. (laughs) So I I think sometimes if they don't get on with each other, that can be a problem. So it's a very, very rigorous thing that they're going through for that two years. And they usually introduce themselves as elder, don't they? Elder so-and-so and and elder so-and-so. And And, uh, I've I've tended to resist that. I've said to them, you know, if you don't mind, I'm not a member of your church, so I obviously don't accept that you have authority over me. So is it okay if we just use normal names? And they've accepted that because I've explained that situation. But it's a bit uncomfortable because initially they do say, I am elder so-and-so, and and they do expect you to address them in that way. That's absolutely right. They see that their role as a as a missionary is called the kind of office of elder within the Melchizedek priesthood, which is their priesthood authority system. And so throughout that two years, they even call each other elder and they expect everyone else to call them. I mean, obviously, when you look at biblical requirements, husband and one wife, you know, all of these different things, you kind of think, how have you got that title? But according to their beliefs, but it's perfectly fine just to say to them, can I call you by your first name? And it is a lot more personal and mostly they'll mm. they'll be fine with that and you've already mentioned earlier on about how important it is to get to the the differences that we have in terminology yeah do you think you should do that straight away as soon as they try to explain some point of doctrine and you think you're thinking to yourself well this doesn't sound quite right is it important immediately to try and clarify that I think just whenever a new issue comes up, it's worth saying, you know, what do you mean by that? And when you say something, tell them what you mean. Because when we say salvation, we mean becoming righteous in the sight of God. We mean being born again, and we mean being saved. That's kind of the whole thing in one. When they say salvation, as we said earlier, there's these five different meanings for it. And so depending on which one of those they're talking about, they'll come out with a different response. So it it is very, very helpful to define your terms because they're going to use the same terms you use and ask them to define theirs. 
Yeah, otherwise you can end up talking past each other, can't you, very easily? Yeah, what people find is because they use the same terms that we do, you could spend an hour with them and walk away thinking, I don't know what the problem is because I agree with everything they've just said. But the problem is, is that you did not know what they meant by those words. So when they said, oh, I'm saved by grace, really they mean they're going to be raised in the next life. But if you were to say to them, are you exalted by grace, which is the top level which you must work for, that's when they'd start to say, Oh, no, I don't believe that. But you wouldn't think to ask them that unless you already knew the background to it. Yeah. You also mentioned earlier on about this prayer that they sometimes come out with, um, that they ask people to pray. Moroni 10.4. I'd like to ask you about that because, um, shall I just yeah. read, read what that prayer says? This is, so they, they've talked about the Book of Mormon, and then they say to you, look, if you want to know that the Book of Mormon is true, then pray this prayer. And it says, uh, and when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. So you, you will receive confirmation from God that the Book of Mormon, things they've been talking about, are actually true. Now, I have an objection to this because, I mean, on the surface, it sounds fine. You know, ask God if something's true. You know, why not? God can tell if it's true or not. Yeah. But my feeling about this is that it's not really a godly prayer because what they're really asking us to do is to suspend our critical faculties at that point and to ask for a feeling instead. So we might have all sorts of problems about, you know, well, how come about this about the Book of Mormon? How come about this? And they're just saying, no, just a minute, put all those intellectual questions you have aside. Now ask God for a feeling, yeah. um, which I think is contrary to what the Bible teaches, because yeah. so the way I see it, the Bible is telling us to actually prioritize the use of our minds with the help of the Holy Spirit to try and understand things. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It sounds very good, doesn't it? Say to a Christian, will you pray about this? And as a Christian, you kind of it's one of these few moments in life where you ever think, well, I don't want to pray about that. And I think the reason is, is um, what happens is with people who meet up with Mormon missionaries is they'll get to know them. They'll see them as good guys. They'll think, wow, you know, maybe they have something I want. But what the Mormon missionaries will say was, is you need to get your own testimony. You can't join our church. You can't have what we've got until you've got this testimony. And so what can happen is, is that you can meet up with them and you'll go away, you'll pray about it and you won't feel anything. Or maybe you'll feel that it's wrong. And then you'll go back to them and say, sorry, guys, I guess it's not right, or at least for me, after all, you know, I didn't feel anything. I felt it was wrong. They'll take you back to Moroni 10, 3 to 5 and say, no, you need to pray with more sincerity. You're obviously not praying with enough sincerity. So you'll go away again and you'll pray and maybe you'll feel nothing. Maybe you will. And then again, they'll keep bouncing you back until eventually you come to that point where you've prayed with enough sincerity in their eyes that you've then received some kind of an emotional confirmation. And for people who are brought up in the Mormon church, this can be a particularly big issue. You know, the parents have said to them, you know, it's time for you to go on a mission. You've been preparing for it your whole life. You need to get your very own testimony. And for some, I've heard of people praying over 100 times until they finally get this feeling inside them telling them it's true. But the big problem is, is that, as you were saying, it's just not biblical it's not the biblical way to find out what is true i mean they appeal to james 1 5 that says if any of you lack wisdom ask god and he will give it unto you the problem is that saying that to people who are christians already it's not saying if any of you lack a knowledge in what is true ask god it's saying if you lack wisdom and wisdom is obviously just decision making on a day-to-day -day basis not something as significant as where you put your faith mm. and so the bible i think gives a few there's a few verses here that i, I wanted to throw out in relation to this one uh, the first one is Jeremiah 17, 9, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And sometimes it's a good question to ask Mormons, you know, are your feelings infallible? Is it possible? Have you ever been wrong in your feelings? That type of thing. And it kind of gets them thinking about the fact that they are relying on an inner witness feeling to tell them that an entire belief system is is true. 
Um, Hebrews 5.14 says, but solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the Bible actually says this ability to be able to distinguish between what is good, what is bad with discernment is actually something that comes through training, something that comes through practice, something that comes over time. Not just something a young guy who's you know never particularly done this type of thing before can get an accurate answer from God and know that that's exactly right. And I think the best scriptural answer of all, which is the one I've always used without fail when explaining this to Mormon missionaries or any Mormon, is Acts 17, 11 is the main one, but I'll read out Acts 17, 10 to 12. It says, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So what this says is these Bereans were noble-minded, so that's a compliment, Mm. and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And so what I tend to say to Mormon missionaries is, well, you're presenting to me ultimately a new gospel. You're saying that what I have is fine, but what you have is the next bit. And so almost in the same way, the Apostle Paul's going to the Jews and tell them, look, it's fulfilled. What you've been waiting for has come. And what they did was search their scriptures to see if what Paul said was right. And then many of them believed. So that means that what he said aligned up with what they had. And so what I, again, what I say with Mormons is that if what you are saying to me fits in with the Bible, fits in with the scripture, I'm going to be like a Berean and search the scripture scriptures here if what you say fits in then i'll pray about whether what you believe is right or not yeah um yeah uh, the uh, theologian anthony hoakima said that uh, because jesus is actually part of the mormon religion although they obviously have a distorted view of him it is possible that some mormons might actually know jesus in a saving way mm. that we we mustn't assume that every mormon is is lost just because they are mormons you know yeah um obviously he didn't mean that as an excuse we don't need to evangelize them mm. but we we shouldn't just assume they're all in the same place spiritually so do you actually agree with that do you think that's helpful for us to keep in mind when talking with them yeah, I actually really do agree with that. I think one of the massive difference between born-again Christianity and any institutional religion is that our salvation is not based on our standing with our church. So whatever church you go to, I don't even know, to be honest, but I go to Middlesbrough Community Church. My salvation is not based on my membership in that church, not based on my activity in that church. My salvation is based on the fact that I know Christ, that I place my trust completely in him and not myself in order to be saved. And so if I stop going to that church tomorrow, it wouldn't matter. So the same thing applies to a Mormon. They may be in a system of belief which is contrary to that which should bring biblical salvation. But if even in themselves they've trusted in Christ to that point, then I think absolutely a Mormon can be saved or born again i think the only thing i would say is that that is despite what their church teaches them rather than because of it sure but it's we can never ever say that any individual is not saved we can just look at the belief system that they follow and say that is not producing salvation so therefore i want to witness to those people and so there's one guy in america who's called sean mccraney he's run a tv show for quite a few years now reaching out to mormons And he's very clear with his story that he became born again while he was still a Mormon. And I think he remained one for a number of years and he didn't stop going straight away. But eventually God led him out and God kind of showed him, you know, if you want to carry on living this stuff, it's not going to happen here. He was in his car at the time, I think, listening to a Christian preacher. And that was when he kind of truly gave himself to Christ. But he still very much carried on as a Mormon for as long as he possibly could after that until eventually I think the conflict was that much that he had to go. But And I imagine that's the case for quite often a lot of other people. So I do agree that when we meet these guys, it's not right to necessarily completely assume that they are lost. 
But again, just ask them, what is their trust? You know, I mean, a great question to ask is when you stand before God, what are you going to look to? What are you going to point to to say to God, I'm worthy of being with you for eternity? And I think you and I would agree that we would say, well, there's Jesus. I'm going to appeal to what he did. And that's why I should spend it. Absolutely. Whereas the Mormon church teaches that actually when they stand before God, they need to do some of these signs and tokens that they did in the temple to appeal to the fact that they did them in this life to show that they are worthy of celestial glory. Mm. And that's a massive difference between the two. And so if you can ask someone that and get a feel of what their answer is to that, I think that'll tell you a lot. And you said that this guy did eventually leave the Mormon church, didn't he? And um, you, you mentioned a, a young lady that you, you knew who also left. Yeah, Cheryl, yeah. Yeah. What kind of difficulties do these people encounter when they leave that organization? I think with Cheryl, it wasn't so bad. She didn't have family in the church. But what can happen is, and this happens a lot in Utah, but I imagine it happens in the UK as well, is that you get a lot of people who cease to believe in the Mormon church for quite a while, but they won't leave because of the impact that it will have on their family and on themselves. And then when people do leave, which does happen, there has been times that their Mormon bishop has said to them, well, you need to leave that's never been officially by the Mormon Church. In fact, I've got an article in front of me from the July 2012 Ensign magazine. That's the official Mormon magazine. And it tells the story of someone whose spouse stopped believing. And it kind of says how they made the decision to stay with them. And I think that was the Mormon Church making a statement to its people that when your spouse leaves, don't leave them. Because that was happening that much before. There's been many, many, many cases of people clearly leaving the Mormon Church and having their spouse leave them, having contact with kids going, having friends abandon them. All that type of thing is quite commonplace, I imagine, even since that article was wrote. And so when people leave, they've got a whole break of community, break of family, all of that type of thing potentially to happen. You know, all of this community, because, I mean, the Mormon Church, we've spoke of a lot of negatives, but the Mormon Church is a very, very good institution in terms of its social, in terms of its community, all of that type of thing. I mean, for the teenagers, they've got a system called YSA, Young Single Adults, to put dancers on balls on. They really do cater. There's even like a Mormon movie industry in america there's um have you heard of monopoly they've got a game called more monopoly (laughs) (laughs) yeah so they've got like all these different so there's a lot of kind of social needs catered for and i think particularly if you're in utah you could get potentially have your entire Mm -hmm. life in the mormon church in terms of social in terms of movies in terms of friends family it could all be in there so if you suddenly come to a point where you think actually this is wrong there's a, a hell of a lot to lose. Yes, yes, very, very difficult. And a lot of people who do leave, presumably leave, because they do become Christians. And uh, is, is the church really equipped to help people like this? I, th- I think a lot of the people that are leaving are leaving because they come to the realisation that it's wrong. And uh-huh. I certainly know quite a lot of those that have become Christians. But what you tend to find is that a lot of people who leave the Mormon church because of the issues with the truthfulness of it tend to become atheists. That's really? very common. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, both Mormon and Jehovah's Witnesses, because what they think is, well, I've been lied to by this institution for that long. Why should I believe that? I see. Yeah. But going back to your question, for those that do become Christians and do join a church, the reality is quite often the church doesn't know how to handle them. And I know one guy in particular who's local to me who said that since leaving the Mormon church, he's tried to visit Christian churches and kind of said, I used to be a Mormon. And he's almost been met with a little bit of, you know, distrust, a little bit of hostility. I'm not saying that all churches would do this, but 
people can see these things as a threat. So when someone comes into their church from that, sometimes they're not sure what to do. And again, the Mormon church is very, very structured. As soon as you join the Mormon church, you will be told what your calling is. It's not like us where quite often kind of God leads us to something and we realize that's for us and it, it can take a while. You are told your calling and as life goes on in the Mormon church, you'll be given other callings. And so it's very, very structured, you know, two or three meetings a week, all of that. And so when you go to a Christian church, which is very understandably not as structured because there's not the legalism, there's not you must do this, you must do that. It's kind of like here it all is, you can do what you want. They miss that structure in a sense. And so quite often people don't fit in very well, very quickly into Christian churches after leaving these movements. It certainly does happen. But for any church leaders, I'd say that these are people who are particularly in need of some fast kind of community, some meetings, all of that type of thing, just so that they can get something of what they're missing. And I guess this is part of what you do, is it, when you, you go around educating the church on how to deal with these issues? Yeah. So my ministry, UK Partnerships for Christ, what we exist to do is go around the country and just basically give seminars. It can be for an evening, it can be a f for a full day. And just kind of like what we've done in this discussion, but just equip people with the basic beliefs of these groups, but also what are the practices and what are the issues that can happen when people come out and the type of support that people will need. Because as we say, some people are so quick to close the door to these people that they don't have the chance to really understand them. So with these seminars, if someone here as a Christian's doing this, well, okay, I'll give it a listen. My hope is that when they next get a knock on the door of these people, they'll think, actually, it's not that bad. You know, I don't need to know everything. I don't need to throw everything at them. We can just sit and have a chat. And so the idea is to kind of demystify witnessing to these people. And if people want you to come and speak to their church, then how do they get in touch with you? My website is upfc.org.uk, so UK Partnership of Christ on Google, or my email is bobbygilpin at gmail.com. There's a contact box on the website, or they can send an email in whatever way people want to get in touch, whether it's to ask us to come and speak. I've got a couple of guys involved with the ministry, a, a Tony Brown and a Jason Thickpenny, who are both ex-Jehovah's Witnesses and are very, very good on all of this stuff with Jehovah's Witnesses, much better than me. So whether it's either or of these groups, we can offer advice, we can offer seminars, we can you know, just do whatever we can to help people reach out to these people. In some cases, um, recently I've had it where, you know, someone's son has joined them and so they want advice on how to deal with that you know that's something we're more than happy to help with as well and you have two blogs that you run as well and that's in connection with the website you just mentioned isn't it yeah they're both branches of our website which is mormonisminvestigated.co.uk and watchtowerinvestigated.co.uk and so what we do is try and stay very up to date with the Mormonism investigated one. We're going to spend a year going through the 2013 teaching manual of the Mormon church, which is teachings of the prophet Lorenzo Snow. So what we try and do is deal with them on a really up to date basis, what the Mormon church is saying today and just what the Christian response is to that. To so both reach out because we have a lot of Mormons that visit and comment on the Mormon blog. Also, we have a lot of Christians looking to help them understand it as well. Uh, you, you mentioned just before we uh, started recording that there's going to be a, a pageant in, in Chorley at the temple, and that's going to be this year. So could you tell us a little bit about what's going to happen there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a bit of background to that. When I've been to Utah, for two of the three years I've gone to Utah, there was this event on called the Manti Miracle Pageant. And what that's been is it's been a, a massive event put on by the Mormon Church where every night 14,000 Mormons walk to their seats and there's about you know, 150, 200 Christians there, mostly from America. But I mean, me and my wife have been over. You know, I have some quiet witnessing chats with them. Whoever will stop and speak to us, it's nothing too heavy. What's happening this year for the first time ever is the Mormon Church 
is doing a pageant outside of the US and that's going to be in Chorley in England just on the grounds of their temple there and every night for the, over the course of two weeks I think there's a few day gap they're going to be going through a reenactment of their theology but also history particularly in relation to England and is that open to the public to go and see that as far as I'm aware, yes. With the Manti one, it certainly was. So I would say yes. I imagine this will be a very significant kind of event for them where they'll bring guests along. Chances are the people that missionaries are meeting up with, they might try and put minibuses on and bring them in, I would have thought. And so my hope is to do a similar outreach effort there to what we did in Manti, where we have a number of Christians just, just outside the temple. Again, nothing heavy, nothing shouting or anything like that. But just try and engage people as they're going in in discussion. We're going to be putting a training day on on Saturday the 19th of January at Chapel House Christian Fellowship in Moor Road in Chorley and that's going to be a 10am until 4pm day where we're going to be kind of going through all of these issues that we've gone through on this interview just in a bit more depth and look at how they, that can translate to a witnessing discussion on the streets on this at this event at the end of July beginning of August as well. You mentioned about the resources that you have on your website, but um, can you suggest any other resources that people might want to go to to find out more about Mormonism? Yeah, certainly. Um, there's two websites in particular which I think are the best. One of them is called Utah Lighthouse Ministry. That's www.utlm.org. That's led by a lady called Sandra Tanner, who was actually, a, she is a descendant of Brigham Young, the second Mormon president. Mm. Her and her husband, Gerald, I think a number of years ago now, possibly around 30 or 40, both left the Mormon church and established a kind of research ministry looking at a lot of the older texts within Mormonism, looking at how the changes have occurred over time. And that website probably is the best in the world to look at from a Christian perspective, all of the different issues within Mormonism. It really goes far back into the history. And I think there's hundreds of articles on there. As well, there's Mormonism Research Ministry, which is www.mrm.org. And that's very current. That's very up to date. And it goes through a lot of the different issues going on with Mormonism today, as well as it focuses very heavily on a lot of the theological issues within Mormonism. That's led by a guy called Bill McKeever, who's just released a book recently um, called Answering Mormons Questions, which is um, which is a brilliant book you can get on Amazon. If anyone wanted to start somewhere to read into this stuff in more depth, I think that'd be an excellent one. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed for spending all this time with me. We've been now talking for over an hour, so it's, it's been it's been a very enjoyable time. So uh, thanks very much for taking all this time to talk with me on the Mind Renewed. Excellent. Now, thank you very much for having me. Well, I very much hope you enjoyed my interview with Bobby Gilpin. In weeks to come, I'm likely to be speaking to another guest from UK Partnerships for Christ, this time on the subject of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm also hoping in the next few weeks to be speaking to Corey Brackett, the documentary maker of Sweet Misery and Sweet Remedy, and we'll be discussing the dangers of the artificial sweetener aspartame. And in early February, the journalist James Corbett of CorbettReport.com will be joining me to discuss the meaning of the term the New World Order. So please do stay tuned for that. And on the subject of staying tuned, I'd like to make a little request, if I may. If you happen to use iTunes, I would be really grateful for some more comments and ratings for The Mind Renewed within the iTunes store. And this is quite important because I've been told that just a handful of positive comments can really help to increase the visibility of a podcast during its early days. So if you found this or any other of the podcasts interesting, informative, entertaining, a positive experience in some way, then please do leave a comment and rating and perhaps even consider subscribing within iTunes because, as I say, this could make a big difference to the podcast in its early days. So it just remains for me to say thank you once again for spending this time with me whenever and wherever you happen to be 
You have been listening to The Mind Renewed with me, Julian Charles, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.